I have told you before, it's been said that any church should have more dreams than memories. Any church should have more dreams for the future rather than memories. We should be looking forward as opposed to only looking back. So if we were to ask this morning, what would our dreams be for our church family? How would we answer that question? What would be our dreams? I think we all have different answers for that. Some of us might be a preacher that doesn't preach as long as the one you have. (laughs) Some of it might be different music. Some of it might be kids crawling all over the place. Some of it might be having a volunteer list where people are mad that they don't get chosen to volunteer in kids' ministries and everywhere else. Maybe it might be having more money than we know what to do with so we can do anything we want to do to our building and more important than our building for the cause of missions all over the world. Maybe you think we're missing a pastoral staff member, that Pastor Dave and I just aren't quite cutting it, and you have the specific position in mind. (laughs) All of us have different answers to what would our dream be for our church. But I wonder how many of our dreams are truly rooted in, are truly driven by love. How many of our dreams are, are truly grounded in love for the body of the church, not so much for our own preferences or our own comfort. And when we think about our church and its needs and our future, are we truly driven by the responsibility that above all else we are to love God and we are to love others? We're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and one of the things we're finding is that the Corinth church had quite a problem in this area. They had plenty of gifts, including the impressive gifts, the showy gifts. And apparently, in most cases at least, they had accurate doctrine. But the Corinth church had very, very little love. It seemed like competition and comparison were their default. They were impressed with these impressive gifts, these grace gifts that we've looked at over the last few weeks. But they used those grace gifts that God, through His Spirit, had given. They used those grace gifts in selfish ways. And all of this pride and all of this self-promotion, it had infected not just their relationships, but it was infecting their corporate worship gatherings. So that when they came together for worship, instead of the focus being on the God who had saved them, it was on the impressive gifts and those who had them. They were failing to be the body of Christ. They were the body of Christ, but in living out who they were, they were drastically falling short. They were failing to recognize this identity that they were a representation in the city of Corinth. They were an ongoing representation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lord of all things. They were failing to be the body. Paul addresses this earlier in our letter. We looked at it several months ago in chapter 8 where he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, that was a particular conflict in the church, concerning food offered to idols, we know that, and likely this is a quote, he says, all of us possess knowledge. Likely they would love to say that to one another. Hey, we've got knowledge. Hey, we're an educated church. We're a gifted church. We, We know what's coming down. We know how to manage all the issues in life. We are a gifted gathering. We've got all knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up, Paul says. But love builds up. To be puffed up with knowledge 
as opposed to being built up with love. And so this morning we come to chapter 13. If you'll open your Bibles there to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we find Paul's famous love chapter. And it is soaring prose. In fact, it's almost poetic. We have heard it at weddings. You have seen it on greeting cards. And likely you have studied it before as well. Some consider chapter 13 a detour, like an add-on. It's as though Paul was tired of dealing with all of the problems in the Corinth church, so he wants to take a break and talk about something encouraging and, and uplifting. But the truth is, this is not a digression. It's not a detour. What this is, is the core of the letter. If you're going to be, if you're going to manifest what it means to be the body of Christ, this is a prerequisite. This is the foundation. Everything else flows from this. And that is the reality of love. It's the heart of the letter. So with that in mind, let's read the text this morning. Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we'll read the entire chapter. In fact, in fact, we'll start at the end of chapter 12. And as I read, I remind you, as I do every week, this is God's word for us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. I gave up childish ways. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let me give you three initial observations before we dive into the core of the message this morning. The first is this. Love is not a grace gift. Love is not one of the charismatic gifts. At the end of chapter 12, I will show you a still more excellent way. Rather, love is the mode in which grace gifts should function. It's the atmosphere of all our interactions. It's the water that we should swim. It's the air that we should breathe. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. 
And it is the context, at least it should be, the context in which all of our other activities find their being. Secondly, love is not an abstraction. Love is not merely a feeling. There are feelings associated with genuine love, but love is not a feeling. We don't fall in and out of this kind of love. It's been said often, love is a decision. That's right. And to be genuine, love must be acted out. Uh, Again, it's often been said, love is a verb. Unless it gets to action, unless it gets to some kind of evidence, it's not genuine love. Love is acted upon. The third observation is that this word that is used, all of you, nearly every one of you have heard this before, the word agape or uh, the verb agapao, it is not common in Greek at the time. It was in existence in Koine Greek, in broader Greek, street-level Greek, but it was very rarely used. It was generally ignored, and in fact, many believe that it was considered weak or deficient kind of love because it requires humility, because it's focused on the other person. And so eros and phileo and those other Greek terms that have to do with love or affection or even sensual love, those were emphasized, but until the New Testament, agapao and agape were somewhat ignored. But this is the love that God has for us. It's the love we have for one another. And Paul's challenge in chapter 13 to the Corinthians and the word of God's challenge to you and to me, if we're Jesus followers is that in our busyness, or perhaps even in our apathy, do we really love? And the way I want to ask that question this morning, the way I hope the Holy Spirit will use my stumbling words to encourage you, is to, is to revisit over and over again the question, what are we giving ourselves to? What are we giving ourselves over to? Because Paul reaches a point where he's dealing with all of these problems in the Corinthian church, and now he speaks of the core issue, he speaks to the core issue that was driving all of these deficiencies and these dysfunctions. And essentially it was this, that instead of giving themselves to love, they were giving themselves over to self-pursuit and to self-centeredness and to self-agenda. And thus we have the love chapter. I'll show you four things this morning. The first is this, beginning in verse 1. With love, we experience genuine ministry. With love, when love is in our life and in our relationships and in our activities, we experience genuine ministry as followers of Christ. There is this sense, as we have worked our way through 1 Corinthians, we see this emphasis over and over again on the grace gifts, on the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us to magnify Jesus, to to build the health of the church. And this is a privilege and opportunity to use our grace gifts. And if we don't exercise those in love, that opportunity and privilege is lost. That's what we find here. Paul gives in verses 1 through 3, three hyperbolic examples or illustrations of public and showy service, of ministry that is impressive, of grace gifts that are used without love, and when they are used without love, they are, Paul ends up saying, they are useless and they are meaningless. Now let that sink in for a moment. The very specific gifts that God built into you, if you use them apart from love, they are useless and meaningless. This should wake us up. This should cause us to stop and say, wait a minute. 
a gift that God has given, a way that he has equipped me, instead of using it appropriately and properly in love, I'm making it useless. I'm abusing it, misusing it. It's a serious issue. And of course, in these verses, as we've read them, we see that tongues keeps popping up and prophecies keep popping up and miracles keep popping up because these are dramatic displays and they got most of the attention. And evidently in the church at Corinth, those were the gifts that people were impressed with. The grace gifts that people wanted, the grace gifts that people bragged about were these impressive, showy kinds of gifts. And so notice in verse 1, the tongues of men and of angels. Likely this is just a hyperbolic term for impressive speech and perhaps the gift the miraculous gift of tongues it's not that angels have their own secret language the bible doesn't imply that or teach that it's just that in that day and age the the streaming of that day and age was rhetoric if you wanted entertainment you'd go to the law courts and watch uh, lawyers argue with one another You'd go to the, the civil square and you'd see people staking their position. And those that had impressive rhetoric, they not only spoke with the tongues of men, but they were like angels talking. Paul says you can have that kind of giftedness, but if you don't have love, you are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Nothing but noise. Nothing but noise. Verse 2, prophetic powers and all mysteries and all knowledge. By the way, mysteries, we need to watch this because we'll be coming back to it over the next few weeks. The mysteries are those things which God reveals and which God discloses. It's important to keep that in the back of your mind over the course of the next several weeks. But these impressive gifts include prophecies and mysteries and knowledge and even this miraculous kind of faith, faith that was so powerful that it could evidently remove mountains again as an hyperbole, and that echoes Jesus' words about faith. But even if you have those kinds of gifts and you don't love, look at what it says. I am nothing, Paul says, the end of verse 2. And then you have this impressive charity, if not sacrifice, in verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, some of your translations say, if I give away my body that I might boast. It's a spelling question in the text, but one way or another, it's this idea of sacrifice. Maybe Paul is thinking of Daniel 3 and the three Hebrew young men that were thrown into the fire. They tell us in history that about the time that this letter was written by Paul, that there had been a public suicide, a very visible, very public, shocking uh, uh, immolation by evidently an Indian in the city of Athens, and everyone in the empire had heard about it. So perhaps it's some odd reference to that. One way or another, Paul says, I can give away myself as a heroic, heroic kind of sacrifice, but if I don't love, look at it again, I gain nothing. Perhaps hinted here is the idea of trying to get some status before God, trying to ma manipulate God. We don't know, but the point is this. To use your grace gifts in any way effectively, in a way that glorifies God, love must be the means that you exercise those grace gifts. And the missing piece, the reason this doesn't relate to us, perhaps, the reason this seems far removed from our own lives, is that we've forgotten this truth that every one of us is designed for ministry. You don't come to a church like this and say, well, the pastors, they're designed for ministry. 
There may be some kind of designation and equipping for public ministry that God perhaps has been kind to give us, but every single member of the body of Christ is designed and equipped for ministry, for service to one another. All of us, each of us. This is what we've already seen in 1 Corinthians. For example, in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, we read this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each, not just the elders, not just the deacons, not just the musicians, to every one of us is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is mutual ministry. And this is the way God has designed the church to work. Paul wrote in another place to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, he said this, and Jesus gave leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The saints do the work of ministry. The saints are involved in serving one another and using their gifts and doing so in love. God designed you, equipped you for more than just showing up. All kinds of gifts. Gifts. All kinds of grace gifts. Serving and giving and praying and the the gift of faith and the gift of teaching. All kinds of gifts. And we should find channels to use those gifts for ministry to one another. So here's your question this morning. The application question, first of all, is this. What are you giving yourself to? What are you giving yourself to? Are you giving yourself to genuine ministry? Are you finding ways to love others by serving. There's a second truth here as you get into the core of the passage. Not only with love, not only will we, when we find love, will we experience genuine ministry, but with love we also experience genuine relationships. In fact, that's what relationships ought to be. They ought to be defined by love. With love we experience genuine relationships. And all of these definitions or these descriptions of love, beginning in verse 4, they all involve the messiness of relationships, the messiness of people. Now, perhaps you're a strange person that no one in your life is messy. Maybe no one is dysfunctional. In all of your life, you don't have anyone. If you think that, you're probably the one who's messy and dysfunctional. Because this is where friction comes, it's where offense comes, it's where we let one another's down, it's where we offend one another. It's in relationships with one another. But with love, we can experience genuine relationships. Let's walk through it, beginning in verse 4. Love is patient and love is kind. The idea of patient is being forbearing, and forbearing not really so much with circumstances, but with people. It's one thing to bear with circumstances, it's another thing to bear with people, right? But love is patient and love is kind. A church father said, love is sweet to all. And think about this for a moment. And through all of this list, I want you to reflect back into our studies in 1 Corinthians. Love is patient and love is kind. Think about the Corinthians coming to the Lord's table. Remember that? The way they were gathering for the Lord's Supper, you remember? How they were pushing to the front and they were leaving poor people out. And evidently, perhaps they were even getting drunk. No, love is patient and love is kind. Next, love does not envy or boast. Envy is craving others' blessings. Boasting is craving everyone's recognition and everyone's attention. We'll think about the Corinthians. 
They had this problem with taking pride in their, in their showy gifts, and they were separating themselves based on who had the most impressive gifts. Love does not envy or does not boast. Next it says love is not arrogant. It is not, that's the very word puffed up we saw earlier. L- love is not rude. It is not inappropriate toward others. Well, think about what we saw about the Corinthians, the fact that, that there were weaker Christians that were confused about eating meat that was offered to idols, and a significant part of the church says, not my problem. They, they weren't worried about that. We're free in Christ. We've got knowledge. We know that that meat is not affected at all by idol worship. And so they didn't care. They were arrogant. They were rude. They were puffed up. They didn't care about their weaker brothers. Love does not insist on its own way, is not irritable. One translation says touchy. It's not touchy. It's not resentful. You know what resentful means. It's keeping that list that you have. I hope you don't have it literally. I hope there's not a place on your phone where you have a list of how everybody's wronged you. But we have it somewhere, don't we? We keep that list filled with resentment and bitterness. This is not the way love behaves. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. And you say, well, where's there a contrast in the book to that? Well, remember, there was a problem in the Corinth church that they were suing one another. How's that for insisting on your own way? I mean, I don't like what you did to me, so we're going to go to court. And remember, Paul is astonished at this back in chapters 5 and 6. He can't even imagine it. And yet that's exactly what we have here. Love does not insist on its own way. And then it says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with right doing. No, it doesn't say that. Did you notice the contrast? It's not rejoicing at wrongdoing and rejoicing at right doing. It's rejoicing with truth. The contrast is between wrongdoing and the truth. Love does not tolerate error and unrighteousness. And why, how is this seen in the Corinth church? Well, you remember that scandalous sexual sin, that affair that was happening that everybody knew about and that they were bragging about how open-minded they were. Look how tolerant we are. Paul says, wait, 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 that's not love. It's not love to be tolerant of that kind of radical wrongdoing. Rather, love rejoices with the truth. By the way, we don't have to just go into sexual sin to see this. Sometimes this shows up in our hearts with just loving gossip. You recognize that when you gossip and you love hearing bad things about someone else, you're basically rejoicing with that which is wrong. You're showing a delight in others' trouble. So it's not only envious, referred to earlier, but it's also rejoicing in wrongdoing. And this is not all of this, all of this description of love. It is not mere niceness. In fact, Paul, who is describing the effects of love and how that's needed in the church at Corinth, he says back in chapter 4, you better be careful, you better get your act together, or else I will come. And remember the phrase he uses? I know this is countercultural and not popular. He says, I'm going to come with a rod of correction. He says that in chapter 4. This is Paul's way of, of echoing all of us as dads who have said too many times to our kids or grandkids, don't make me come down there. Because that's love. 
when it's done appropriately, when it's done for legitimate reasons, when it's done with an attitude of restoration and care, that indeed is part of what love looks like. And then there's the summary in verse 7. And it's a comprehensive summary. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And all of those summaries, have you thought about it? All of those summaries are rooted in an understanding of God's providence. If God has got this, you can bear all things. If God has got this, you can believe all things. If God has got this, you can hope all things. If God has got this, you can endure all things. Because God has his purposes and God is at work. And loving people means interacting in your relationships with a confidence in God's providence and a care for them in such a way that you manifest a concern about their good and their welfare as opposed to your own comfort and your own desires. Love is more concerned with giving than getting. Love is others-focused as opposed to being self-centered Love is empowered by confidence in God and His purposes. And the ways the Corinthian believers were using their gifts centered on themselves, not on the needs of others. So here's your question this morning, your application question, and I'll return to the same question. What are you giving yourself to? When you invest in relationships, are you investing in relationships that feed your own felt needs? Or are you giving yourself in relationships to the needs of others? In your interactions, whether it be with your family, or whether it be with your neighbors, or whether it be with strangers, do you have a mindset that says, my perception, my comfort, my opinion, my agenda is not nearly so important as what that person needs? Because that's what it means to love them well. Now, why is all this so crucial? Why, why does it work this way? Why should it work this way? Well, perhaps we need to pause and just go back and remind ourselves that love is a fundamental attribute of our triune God. What does the Bible tell us? God is love. We know from reading the Gospels that Christ is the personification of love. His life and His death and His resurrection and His lordship and His offering of forgiveness, that is love defined and displayed. So God the Father is love, God the Son showed love, and God the Holy Spirit, when the fruit of the Spirit is listed in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is, the first one is what? Love. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in a sense, it's never a comfortable way to say this, but in a sense you could say he is defined by love. And so this is the basis for our love for him and our love for others. Remember what John says in 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. A more familiar verse in John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's how much God loves. 
And in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now can I unpack that for just a moment? God doesn't show his love for us in that he sees something lovely in us and saves us. God doesn't show his love for us in that he sees that we're worthy and valuable and he saves us. God shows his love for us in that, here's God's love. Here's how it's seen. Here's how God shows his love. While you were still a rebel, Christ died for you. While you were still a willful sinner, left to your own, you would have always said, I'll go my own way. And yet the love of God is so overwhelming that Christ died for us in our sins. And that's the gospel, folks. That's the good news. That's what it means to be a Jesus follower. That's what it means to have your sins forgiven. And what a shame it would be to sit through a message on the love of God and to walk out and think that this love of God is just some kind of generic, I want to do good to my neighbor, I'm going to try to not be so selfish, and that's what it means that, uh, that I understand the love of God. The fundamental truth of the love of God is that God loved you in your rebellion and sin and have you repented and turned from that sin and trusted, put your hope and faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's when you experience the love of God. In fact, a word of warning, if you never deal with the issue of your guilt, then you will face the judge of the universe bearing your own guilt because he loves righteousness and he will not, he will not let that go if your sins are not covered. This is God's love. It's important for all of us to recognize With love, we experience genuine ministry. With love, we experience genuine relationship. But next, beginning there in verse 8, with love, we find what lasts. With love, we find what lasts. And this is somewhat of a complex text. It's so familiar to us, and yet there are all kinds of issues in it. And quite frankly, I feel like a lot of commentators miss the point of what's going on. That's a bold thing for me to say, I know, but that's my opinion. Pastor File, you'll forgive me for that, but I have an opinion on this, and I think my opinion is informed with Scripture, so let me walk you through it. But the emphasis in this text, in verses 8 through 12, is the fact that love is what lasts. It's not temporary, it's eternal. Notice verse 8, love never ends, the ESV says. The King James said, love never fails. I think the the NIV says love never falls. But look at the contrast. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. The NIV nicely says they will be stilled. And let me just comment, there is a possibility that the unique verb form there, it might allow the idea of ceasing on its own because some people make that argument about tongues. We're not going to discuss all of that this morning. But that's a possible interpretation. But then it goes on, it says that tongues will cease, and for knowledge it will pass away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, when is this perfect coming? Things now are temporal. 
And there's a level in which we could say this, watch this, there's a level in which we could say there's an inadequacy right now. So when will we get to that place of perfection, of maturity? And that word can be used as well for perfect, the Greek. The idea of being fully mature or being complete or being perfect. Well, if you've done some studies on this, I'm not going to take a lot of time on this this morning, but you know that some people think, well, the perfect is the Bible. So once the Bible was completed, the Bible's perfect. That doesn't seem to be consistent with the rest of what's said, as you'll see before we're through. Some people think it means a mature church. And so this is the end of the apostolic age. Now, I believe some things changed at the end of the apostolic age, but I don't think that's what this is talking about. Rather, the term that's used, perfect, has to do with the consummation of the ages. It's when everything is wrapped up. It's when we're in the presence of God. We see Him, as we'll see in a moment, face to face. That's the way that term is used. That's the way the Corinthians would have heard it. That's the way they would have read it. The perfect is the consummation of the ages. It's the eternal state. It's when God finally wraps everything up. This is the perfect. And when that happens, things are different than they are now. And even grace gifts, as valuable as they are, are temporal now. This is what Paul is saying. That there is something which lasts beyond even the best grace gift, if you can use that phrase. Even the most productive grace gift. It's only temporal. It's only for this time. But what was the problem? The problem was the Corinthians were acting as though this was the be-all to end-all. This exercise of my grace gift, this is what matters most. Paul says, why are you doing that? It's going to pass away. Love is what lasts. Love is what lasts. And so notice what he does in verse 11. This is where I think a lot of commentators miss it. He, he's essentially rebuking them because he's saying, look how short-term, look how childish your thinking is. He says, when I was a child... I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. By the way, have you ever tried to reason with a three-year-old? That's his point. Because the only thing a three-year-old is thinking about is right now. And you can reason with that three-year-old all you want about why that food isn't healthy for them or why this shouldn't happen or why they should obey you here. But that at the end of the day, you know that's a frustrating process. Paul's saying... Corinthians, this is how you're living. You think you're so puffed up. You think you're so great, but you're living as children because you're thinking the ultimate is that which is going to pass away and you're missing that which is ultimate. And that's love. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So these are mature values as opposed to short-term childish immature idols. And the Corinthian factions, they were using their grace gifts and they were thinking they had arrived they were proud, but really they were childish. And all of this, Paul says, all of that is folly. Because this temporal life, while it's important, we're going to see that before we're through, this temporal life is a prelude to something far greater. Where is that? Look in verse 12. For now, we see in a mirror darkly. The Greek is the word from which we get in uh, enigma. It's like a mystery. It's like we can't quite figure it out. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. By the way, Corinth was famous for its bronze, especially polished bronze, because that was the way mirrors were made back in these days. So Paul's connecting with his readers, and he's saying, that's a temporal, an ineffective, an inefficient kind of image. Some people think it has an issue of, of clarity versus 
a, a lack of precision. Other people think the point is a mirror is just an image. How much better is the real thing? It's, it's the intimacy that comes, and that seems to be where he's going to land in the end of the verse. But either way, it's a contrast not between good or bad. It's a contrast between that which is temporal, adequate for now, but only temporal, and that which is ultimately meaningful and eternal. And the question is, what are you giving yourself to? You see, you can know something truly without knowing it comprehensively. And this is what Paul is acknowledging. Right now, we have truth. But there will come a time in which we will be in such full communion with the infinite God that we will look back and see what we used to know and it will be like a vague image in polished bronze. One author says it this way, our wonder will be unshackled, our question marks will be transformed into exclamation marks. That's what's coming. And it's not just wonderful. Here's the application. It will be personal. Look at the end of verse 12. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is everything that we might wish for. And Paul's point is that the Corinthians were so focused on themselves and so focused in this life and so focused on showy things that they were missing the significant eternal blessing of knowing God and being known by God. He's already referred to this. Back in chapter 8, again, he says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The point is, love is what lasts. And as we interact with one another and as we worship our God, when we do so, so fixated on ourselves and our own agenda, we are not operating in love and we're focusing on that which is going to pass away and we're missing the infinitely eternal value of that which will never pass away. So for sure, a better day is coming. But don't miss this. Until then... We do still need the gifts. Look in your Bibles if you still have your Bibles open. If not, just listen. In chapter 14, look in verse 1. After all of this, he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, the grace gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, we'll get there next week. But he's not saying grace gifts don't matter. He's not saying the way God has equipped the church, it's meaningless. Just do whatever you want. In fact, over the next two or three weeks, we'll be dealing with the, the technicalities of how those gifts ought to be used. But before he gets into all of that, he says, listen very carefully. He stops, he hits pause, and he says, the issue is not that stuff you're so worried about. The issue is, do you love your God? And do you love the people next to you? In fact, do you love the people that have the showy gift that you wish you had? Do you love the people that it seems to you from where you are right now that they get an opportunity to use their gifts and you're stifled right now? Do you love them? Those are the questions. That's what he's doing in chapter 13. He's saying make sure that you recognize 
what lasts, and what lasts is love. So again, the application this morning, the question is, what are you giving yourself to? Are you loving that which and those who last forever? Or are you wasting your energy on things that will pass away? Things that don't last. Finally, verse 13. With love we find what lasts. We also find what matters. We find what matters. Look at the last verse. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love abide. Now again, commentators aren't quite agreed. Some think that what Paul is saying is now faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest is love. Some people think when he says now, he means now in my argument. So I'm, a, I'm summarizing. Faith, hope, and love abide, and the greatest is love, and faith, hope, and love will abide into eternity. And here's the problem I have with that. When we get into eternity, when we reach the consummation, when the perfect comes, when we are face to face, when we know as we are known, we won't have to have faith anymore. Because faith has become, what's the Bible say? Faith becomes what? Sight. Faith will become sight. And we don't have to hope because hope has to do with what you are confidently expecting. But when we get to heaven, all of our confident expectations will now have become have come to fruition. I don't anticipate living eternally in hope because those promises will have been fulfilled. But what the Bible teaches about the nature of God, what the Bible teaches about the nature of being a creature, and we will remain a creature into eternity, what the Bible teaches is that we will still live and relish and exult in the love of God. And Paul's point is, that's what matters. That's what you should care about. That's what you should fixate on. That's what you should give your energy to. That's what the church should care about, loving God and loving others. And loving others includes loving those people that are not yet in the faith and that don't have the promise of eternal love. Rather, are in danger of eternal damnation. This is one of the reasons we exist. Because love, with love, we find what matters. So once more, what are you giving yourself to? Are you giving yourself your attention, your energy, your time, your worship? Are you giving yourself to that which matters most? Because what chapter 13 tells us, and I think what we know in our hearts, where would we be without the love of God? And the Holy Spirit has now shed abroad, He has produced within us God's love in our hearts and lives. And we're called to love one another. That's the most excellent way. Let's pray together.
Father, we are made, even in our brokenness, we are made in your image. Desirous of love. We would ask that your Holy Spirit would speak into our hearts right now. First of all, those hearts that are dead, that are still in sin, that are still bearing their own guilt because they've never trusted in Christ and His provision for salvation. We pray that you would speak into those hearts with your gracious love, lovingly enlightening those hearts of the need for repentance and faith. Father, we pray for those of us who are discouraged. We're your children, and yet we look at our circumstances and we feel overwhelmed. And I pray that we would be bathed over with the love of God. I pray for those of us who have had weeks of great blessing, weeks of joy. We've had days of joy, and and we come exulting in your goodness. I pray that we will recognize that you have done this in our lives so that we might share and spread that love with others. And we come to the table this morning, and we recognize the table is the visible reminder of the literal love of God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so help us this morning. Whatever our circumstance, wherever we are, wherever we will be this week, prepare us to be people drenched with the love of God, sharing the love of God, knowing and experiencing the love of God. And give us the ability through your Holy Spirit, enlighten our hearts that we might not be like the Corinthians who fixate so much on temporal things that they lost the sense of the eternal. Do this work by your Spirit, even as we come to your table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.